Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to the third and concluding episode of this three-part series on the history of royal tennis, or as it is known now, real tennis. We left off part two at the birth of Henry VIII on the 28th of June, 1491. Visually, Henry VIII is perhaps best remembered through Holbein's portrait of a powerful, strutting majesty. Yet it is well documented that Henry, in his youth, was an athletic and sports-loving man, and he was especially fond of tennis, becoming so proficient, in fact, that when the Venetian ambassador happened to watch Henry play in 1519, the ambassador commented in his dispatches that it was the prettiest thing in the world to see him play, his fair skin glowing through a shirt of the finest texture. As mentioned in the previous episodes, royal tennis was played on indoor courts, and as an avid player, Henry would have coveted his own well-constructed court. He finally acquired one in 1529, by that age-old kingly tradition of gifting it to himself by way of an out-of-luck friend. When Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, once Henry's most trusted adviser, failed to secure Henry an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, which would have allowed him to marry Anne Boleyn, Wolsey fell spectacularly out of favour. This led to the confiscation of several of Wolsey's properties, including the newly renovated Hampton Court, a sumptuous London residence, which Henry then took for himself, not least because of its beautiful indoor tennis court which had been added to the house between 1526 and 1529. The Hampton Tennis Court was fitted with an even floor and large windows, a feature which was novel compared to the somewhat dark or glassless halls of earlier French tennis courts. Henry VIII was said to have spent many a happy hour there hitting a ball were not betting large sums of money on the outcome of his or his friends' tennis matches. Henry VIII's second wife, the eternally famous Anne Boleyn, was also known to be fond of a good bet, and it was said that she was in the midst of gambling on a game of tennis at Greenwich Castle when she was arrested for treason on the 2nd of May, 1536. And even as she was dragged off, she complained that she had not even collected her winnings. Those coins that she might have won would not have helped her in the following 17 days of her trial. Because, as we all know, Anne Boleyn would never be a free woman again to watch another tennis game. For she was found guilty of treason and adultery and beheaded on the 19th of May, 1536. News of her execution was brought to Henry VIII as he was playing tennis. Following Anne Boleyn's demise, mutterings could be heard amongst the fallen queen's clerical enemies that the sins of tennis and gambling 
ought to be rid of entirely. But as Henry VIII still loved the game, these misgivings were mutely muttered rather than shouted. At court, none had such misgivings, and it was considered a sign of good breeding to know the intricate and complex rules of tennis. In the late 16th century, royal tennis had rules that are not dissimilar to the rules of modern lawn tennis, but royal tennis does allow for point scoring on a wider area and the game is played with a distinct server and receiver end of court. From the 16th century onwards, the game acquired some very curious names for the different strikes, such as the giraffe, the boomerang, and the railroad. These serves proved very difficult to master because the ball skidded across the floor rather than bounce. So it was a very technical accomplishment to be good at royal tennis. Another reason why it was a game for the nobility, for only they would have the time in 16th, 17th and 18th century Europe to set aside hours of practice in order to gain the hand and eye coordination needed. The actual origins of the score system of 1530 and originally 45, now 40, has sadly been lost to time. But we know that they were in use already in the late 16th century as Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, sat on her favourite seat at Hampton Court and watched tennis. She too loved to gamble on outcomes. And perhaps many hopeful young men sought to catch her attention as they sweated and stripped down to their inner linen during a match. These young men might well have read all about the rules and the serves in a book on tennis written by the Italian priest Antonio da Solo, which was published for the first time in 1555. By the 17th century, tennis courts had been added to most of the royal palaces across the European continent, from France to the Italian states and the Habsburg Empire in Prague and Austria. The game reached its zenith in popularity during the 17th century. In England, tennis suffered a decade of recession during the Commonwealth under Cromwell as the Puritans and the powers that were then associated it with gambling. But tennis came back with a vengeance at the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Elsewhere in Europe, the popularity of tennis waned. During the upheavals of the 18th century, including the revolutions and changes to monarchy, royal tennis fell into decline as royal dynasties shrunk or were adjusted into smaller monarchies. By the 19th century, the less difficult and somewhat less expensive lawn tennis, the sport that we would recognize as tennis, had supplanted royal tennis as the preferred tennis variant. It was at this time that players adopted the name of royal tennis to distinguish it from the newfangled game of lawn tennis. 
By the 20th century, journalists referred to the game as real tennis, as it had all but lost its royal patronage, and real tennis is the name by which it is known today. And such is the cycle of history that real tennis was now the true and classical face of the sport when its 700 years in the past had been that newfangled nonsense. Real tennis exists today, though I don't think I am offending anyone by saying that it is not a mainstream sport. Championships are still held, and the sport has one of the oldest continuous world championships, the first being played in 1760. The tennis court at Hampton Court Palace, so beloved by Henry VIII, is still used today, notably by Prince Edward, the youngest child of the late Elizabeth II. So, from the 11th century cloistered walls of French monasteries to the 16th century bespoke floors of one of the most extravagant private and later royal residences, that was Hampton Court Palace, real tennis has lived what one might call a curious life. Real tennis has been stitched into the narrative of bygone people whom we still study to this day, from being the whispered cause of death of a king who played tennis a little too energetically, as was the case of Louis X in 1316, to being the game watched by Anne Boleyn ahead of her downfall in 1536. It was, from the beginning, a game played in male-dominated environments, from monastery to castle to palace, and favoured by men of power in general and kings specifically. With such a close connection to those who rule, it is not surprising that real tennis would be connected to the birth of kings, to the death of sovereigns, to the murder of rulers, and to the downfall of those who fell from power. This concludes the series on royal tennis, now known as Real Tennis. I hope you enjoyed this three-part series on tennis. Perhaps you might consider subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.